was 24 years ago was the last time I was on this stage in this room. I was taping my first one-hour special. It's called Killing Them Softly. My girlfriend was sitting in that room, pregnant. She's now my wife. The baby that she was carrying, my first child, I smoke weed with that nigga now. <laughs> and what I remember most about that night was the pressure. Before the show, I had to run out there on the avenue and hand out tickets to anybody who would take them because I couldn't even fill the fucking room. Boy, what a difference. 24 short years makes. And right before that time, my father had died. He never lived to see me do it. And when he died, I was inconsolable. I thought I'd never smile or laugh again. And the only thing that got me out of that space was a comedian friend of mine, the late, great Norm McDonald. That's right. Shout out to Norm. And what Norm did, which I'll never forget, is he knew that I was the biggest Jim Carrey fan in the world. Now, I'm not going to go all into it, but Jim Carrey is talented in a way that you can't practice or rehearse. What a God-given talent. I was fascinated with him. And Norm knew that. He called me up and he goes, Dave, he says, I'm doing a movie with Jim Carrey. Um, do you want to meet him? And I said, fuck, yes, I do. And it was the first time I could remember since my father died being excited. In the movie... It's called Man on the Moon. I didn't know any of this. And in this movie, Jim Carrey was playing another comedian I admired, the late, great Andy Kaufman. Yes, and Jim Carrey was so immersed in that role that from the moment he woke up to the time he went to bed at night, he would live his life as Andy Kaufman. I didn't know that. When they said cut, this thing was still <laughs> Andy Kaufman. So much so that everybody on the crew called him Andy. I didn't know any of that. I just went there to meet him, and when he walked into the room where we were supposed to meet, I screamed, Jim Carrey! And everyone said, no! <laughs> Call him Andy. I didn't understand. And then he came over and he was acting weird. I didn't know he was acting like Andy called me. He's just like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, hello? <laughs> Andy? Now, Hindsight, how fucking lucky am I that I got to see one of the greatest artists of my time immersed in one of his most challenging processes ever. Very lucky to have seen that. But as it was happening, I was very disappointed. Because I wanted to meet Jim Carrey, and I had to pretend this nigga was Andy Kaufman all afternoon. He was clearly Jim Carrey. I could look at him and I could see he was Jim Carrey. Anyway, I say all that to say, that's how trans people make me feel.
Now, if you guys came here to this show tonight, kind of an I'm going to make fun of those people again. You come to the wrong show. I'm not fucking with those people anymore. It wasn't worth the trouble. I ain't saying shit about trans people. Maybe, maybe three or four times a night, but that is it. Tired of talking about them. And you wanna know why I'm tired of talking about them? Because these people acted like I needed them to be funny. Well, that's ridiculous. Need you? I got a whole new angle. You guys will never see this shit coming. I ain't doing trans jokes no more. You know what I'm gonna do tonight? Tonight, we all handicap jokes. <laughs> well, they're not as organized as the gays. <laughs> and I love punching down. There's probably a handicap in the back right now because that's where they usually make them sit. <laughs> transgender people. I didn't know this nigga was gonna make jokes about us. Come on, y'all, let's get the fuck up out of here. Yeah, it's about time somebody let these handicaps have it. Let them make their match tonight. Fuck them. One time I was on Capitol Hill. I seen a handicapped congressman. Madison Cawthorn, that's his name. <laughs> He's a Republican from North Carolina. And, 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 and he was shocked because I, I saw him and I, and I go, hello, Congressman. He didn't even know I knew who he was. Then I just walked away. I wanted him to see me do something he couldn't do. Skip. And it was mad. He's no longer a congressman. I don't know if you follow politics. Uh, I'm not trying to be funny, but he lost his seat. <laughs> he ran a bad race. Yes, he did. And you know what he did wrong? He was running for Congress again, and this motherfucker tried to be controversial. He was on all the right wing podcasts talking all that shit. He was like, he was like, Washington is worse than Hollywood. I was at home like, what? He said, these people are disgusting. They have gorgeous and sex parties and drug parties. And I was like, this thing sounds like a juicy smoke <laughs> He's lying. Now, I don't doubt that they do this kind of shit in Washington, but I doubt he's seen it with his own eyes. <laughs> because who the fuck invites a paraplegic to an orgy <laughs> so this nigga can roll around and snitch on everybody? I said, there's only one reason you're going to invite him to an origin. And you know what that is. Have at it, guys. I can't feel anything. <laughs> Let's get this bill passed for America. One at a time, folks. 
nobody. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, the handicaps are the new people I punch down on. To be honest with you, I've been trying to repair my relationship with the transgender community because I don't want them to think that I don't like them. And you know how I've been repairing it? Uh, I wrote a play. I did, because I know that gays love plays. <laughs> it's a very sad play, but it's, it's moving. It's about a black transgender woman whose pronoun is sadly nigger. <laughs> it's a tearjerker. At the end of the play, she dies of loneliness because white liberals don't know how to speak to her. <laughs> Speaking of nigger, I've also been working on a book, and this is true. I'm rewriting the American classic, Huckleberry Finn. From Nigger Jim's perspective. It's called The Adventures of Nigger Jim. That's how the book starts. Huckleberry Finn walks up and goes, So you're Nigger Jim. And he's like, Yo, I just said Jim. What's your name, little buddy? Huckleberry Finn is my name. What? Huckleberry. That's it. Your real name? God given. You know what? Just call me nigger Jim, it's fine. <laughs> I don't care if you are black or white or whatever. If you ever meet a white person named Bubbleberry, he has less money than you. <laughs> that is the white trashiest name I've ever heard in my fucking life. And if you have a name like Huckleberry, you're doomed to fail. <laughs> if I was in court and my lawyer came up like, I am your attorney, Huckleberry Finn, I'd be like, uh-oh. I'm going to jail. God forbid I ever go to jail. But if I do, I hope it's in California. Because as soon as the judge sends me, I'll be like, Your Honor, before you sentence me, I just want the court to know I identify as a woman. <laughs> Send me to woman's jail. <laughs> and as soon as I get in there, you know what I'm going to be doing? Give me a fruit cocktail, bitch, before I knock your motherfucking teeth out. A girl just like you, bitch. Call me and suck this girl thing I got. Don't make me explain myself. A girl. In show business, but but in comedy, I'm I'm what's known as a as a lazy comedian, which is crazy because I work all the time. But that's not why they call me lazy. They call me lazy because I do shows sometimes. Twenty thousand people be in the crowd, and, and I'll tell a joke, and, and they all look at me like I'm crazy. But three or four people laugh really hard, and I'll be on stage like, yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> This next joke is one of those jokes that it's not, you know, I mean, I like to tell it, but it never does good. But I'm gonna do it. You know what I didn't do good? I'm not good at impressions, but this is an impression. You ready? Okay. This is not gonna work. 
All right, this is my impression. It's my impression of the dead people on the Titanic. <laughs> you didn't let me finish. This is my impression of the dead people on the Titanic as the submersible was approaching their ship.
Harris got slapped in the face at the Oscars by Will Smith, which was one of the craziest things I'd ever seen. In fact, if you watch it live on television like I did, when it happened, I thought it was fake. I did, and, and I wasn't sure. So you know what I did? I waited, because I'm like, you I know Chris. I waited like 30, 40 minutes, as long as it would take him to get to another party. And I called him on FaceTime, and he picked up. As soon as he picked up, he said, he was the only nigga I'd ask the phone for. <laughs> Apparently, Obama and Oprah, everybody called this nigga. See, everything is all right. And I thought it was fake. I wasn't, I, I didn't know. So I, I asked where I go. I go, well, you know, he said, what? I said, well, did it hurt? And he said, yes, nigga, it hurt. And then I knew that it was real. And then, and only then, was I offended. And I wasn't just offended that he got slapped. That was only half of it. The real offensive part was that after he slapped him, this nigga Will just, just sat down and enjoyed the rest of his evening. It was crazy. It was like, what the fuck is this? And then all year, we was touring, and I, I couldn't wait to see what, what he was going to say in his special about, about this slap. And I told him all year, but the night he taped the special, Chris was one of these guys that's crafty. You never know what he's going to say until he really says it. So I went to see him take the special. He taped it right up the street in Baltimore. Now, you guys are from D.C., so you know, you know about Baltimore. <laughs> we all know that through the years, D.C. has been through some very, very tough times. Sadly, Baltimore is still at a very tough time. Not everybody in the world really can understand the depth of Baltimore. Baltimore is so desperate that Tupac and his mother moved from Baltimore to Oakland for a better life. And Chris Rock went so hard in the paint, and I can't believe he did this. He shocked a Baltimore crowd. I didn't even know that was possible. I started doing comedy around him. Shocked him. And you know what he said that got him? He looked at the crowd. He looked at, I, I didn't expect him to say this. He, he looked at the crowd. It was all black. Baltimore black. <laughs> even if you're rich and black in Baltimore, you know them niggas is traumatized about something. And Chris shocked him. And, and this is what he said. He went to that crowd. That crowd. He said, I refuse to be a victim. And I said, oh. and I was backstage with like, nigga, watch the tape. <laughs> I know it's fucked up, but I'll tell you the truth. You know, everything, everything's funny. Everything's funny until it happens to you. Three months, a mere three months after that terrible attack that Chris Rock endured, I was on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. Lunatic jumped out of the crowd and attacked me. Now, I gotta tell you, if it happens to you, you don't even know what the fuck is happening. It was like slow motion. I just looked over. I don't know this thing. And I was looking, oh my God, I'm, I'm being attacked. 
and this motherfucker was ragged. He jumped at me. He was like, ah. <laughs> I'm old, but I'm fast. I, I caught this motherfucker's head with my hand and pulled his hoodie over his eyes. I can still feel his head in my hand. It was punchy. <laughs> he had been growing dreadlocks. Not the beautiful dreads that Mr. Farrings grow. These were accidental LA homeless dreads. <laughs> this shit had leaves and sticks and bottle caps and shit in it. Some kind of grease. I was like, ugh, like this. And then I fell down. And he knocked me all the way on the ground. And, and I was like, man, this is a bad situation. I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna die or what's gonna happen. But in that moment, the vulnerability, you know what occurred to me that had never occurred to me before in my life? In that moment, it occurred to me that bodyguards should not wear dress shoes to work, Travis. <laughs> this nigga Travis came out slipping aside on some kind of beautiful loafer and, and, and fell flat on the back. Oh my God. Now both of us are down. I gotta handle this shit myself. So I pop that back, bump. And then, and then the kid that knocked me down, he popped up, boom, and we looked at each other and realized, at the same time, I was bigger than him. And that motherfucker took off running. And I started to chase him, and I said, ah, fuck him. I picked the microphone up. I said, I'm gonna finish this show now. That's right. For three months, before that, I've been making fun of Chris Rock. And people would ask me all the time. They'd say, Dave, what would you do if you were Chris Rock and Will Smith slapped you in the face? And to this day, the answer is the same. Well, I don't know what I would have done. I've never been in a situation that extreme. But I do know now what Will Smith would not have done. And that is, enjoy the rest of his evening. <laughs> trying to think of what to say. Um, 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 and I'm, and I'm tongue-tied. Me, of all people, can't think of anything to say. Look at my karma. Just that moment. Of all the people in the world, Chris Rock walks from backstage, walks up to me in front of 20,000 people, grabs the mic out of my hands, and looks the crowd goes, was that Will Smith? <laughs> Man, motherfuckers fell out of their chairs like that. Stay there looking stupid. I was fucking furious because I'm thinking in my mind, nigga, this is my attack. <laughs> you got attacked three months ago. Now you have jokes. <laughs> so I snatched the mic back from Chris and tried to get one off, but my shit did not go good at all. I didn't know what to say. I was just like, it was a trans man. And the crowd was like, boo. It's LA, we like trans people, boo. I know, I felt so bad. I felt so bad. But I know why I did it. You have to be there to understand, but, but man, when that guy tackled me, it was like a, it's like a movie or something. You, you gotta picture this. 
picture a famous person like every famous person you could imagine was at that show. It was like the biggest thing that Hollywood had ever seen. And when that guy tackled me, he cleared the bleachers. I had to watch the tape afterwards to know what's happened, but but as soon as he tackled me, Jamie Foxx was the first motherfucker to jump out of the crowd. He was wearing a white cowboy hat, like he knew this shit was gonna happen to him. <laughs> Never seen this nigga in a cowboy hat before. <laughs> and Jamie started chasing that motherfucker around like any given Sunday. And, and that kid was fast as shit, was juking and shaking, and they broke Jamie's ankles, and he just kept running. And then John Stewart from The Daily Show ran from backstage and jumped at this motherfucker like Super Jew. He was like, ah. <laughs> And the kid seen John coming, so he jumped back and John was flying that way. And this kid was fast, and then he turned around. He sees the emergency exit. He starts running for the emergency exit. Just before he got to the door, motherfucking Puff Daddy from Bad Boy Records jumped in front of the door. That nigga was like, eh, eh, eh. celebrity just ran out because every celebrity sold themselves to me and they just started beating the fuck out of that kid. And I know Chris was backstage looking like, nobody help me. <laughs> Everybody hates Chris. Seats. 
freedom because because I had done LBG. was 24 years ago it was the last time I was on this stage in this room I was taping my first one hour special it's called killing them softly my girlfriend was sitting in that room pregnant she's now my wife the baby that she was carrying my first child. I smoke weed with that nigga now. <laughs> and what I remember most about that night was the pressure. Before the show, I had to run out there on the avenue and hand out tickets to anybody who would take them because I couldn't even fill the fucking room. Boy, what a difference. 24 short years makes. And right before that time, my father had died. He never lived to see me do it. And when he died, I was inconsolable. I thought I'd never smile or laugh again. And the only thing that got me out of that space was a comedian friend of mine, the late, great Paul McDonald. Right. Shout out to Norm. And what Norm did, which I'll never forget, is he knew that I was the biggest Jim Carrey fan in the world. Now, I'm not going to go all into it, but Jim Carrey is talented in a way that you can't practice, rehearse. What a God-given talent. I was fascinated with him. And Norm knew that. He called me up and he goes, Dave, um, he says, I'm doing a movie with Jim Carrey. Um, do you want to meet him? And I said, fuck. Yes, I do. And it was the first time I could remember since my father died being excited. And the movie, it's called Man on the Moon. I didn't know any of this. And in this movie, Jim Carrey was playing another comedian I admired, the late, great Andy Kaufman. Yes, and Jim Carrey was so immersed in that role 
And from the moment he woke up to the time he went to bed at night, he would live his life. That's Andy Kaufman. I didn't know that. When they said cut, this thing was still. <laughs> Andy Kaufman. So much so that everybody on the crew called him Andy. I didn't know any of that. I just went there to meet him. And when he walked into the room where he was supposed to meet, I screamed, Jim Carrey. And everyone said, no. <laughs> Call him Andy. And I didn't understand. And then he came over and he was acting weird. I didn't know he was acting like Andy Kaufman. He's just like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, hello. <laughs> Andy? Now, in hindsight, how fucking lucky am I that I got to see one of the greatest artists of my time immersed in one of his most challenging processes ever. Very lucky to have seen that. But as it was happening, I was very disappointed. Because I wanted to meet Jim Carrey, and I had to pretend this nigga was Andy Kaufman all afternoon. It was clearly Jim Carrey. I could look at him and I could see he was Jim Carrey. Anyway, I say all that to say, that's how trans people make me feel. Something he couldn't do. 
God forbid I ever go to jail. But if I do, I hope it's in California. Because as soon as the judge sends me, I'll be like, Your Honor, before you sentence me, I just want the court to know I identify as a woman. <laughs> Send me to woman's jail. <laughs> and as soon as I get in there, you know what I'm going to be doing? Give me a fruit cocktail, bitch, before I knock your motherfucking teeth out. A girl just like you, bitch. <laughs> Call me and suck this girl thing I got. Don't make me explain myself. A girl. <laughs> <laughs> show business but but in comedy I'm I'm what's known as a as a lazy comedian which is crazy because I work all the time but that's not why they call me lazy they call me lazy because I do shows sometimes 20,000 people be in the crowd and, and I'll tell a joke and, and they'll all look at me like I'm crazy but three or four people laugh really hard and I'll be on stage like yeah that's good enough <laughs> This next joke is one of those jokes that <laughs> it's not, you know, I mean, I like to tell it, but it never does good. <laughs> but I'm going to do it. You know, I didn't do good. I'm not good at impressions, but this is an impression. You ready? Okay. <laughs> this is not going to work. All right, this is my impression. It's my impression of the dead people on the Titanic. <laughs> As the submersible was approaching their ship, that's good enough. All right, here it goes. Oh, nigga, I, I go by myself. 
But my wife doesn't understand why I go to the strip club. It has nothing to do with sex, you understand? I need a pinch of sexual energy in the room to relax. But it's more about being out. I like the music. <laughs> a few naked chicks in there just makes me feel good. But I'm not trying to like socialize or meet anybody. You know, sometimes I go to the strip club and, and I bring a book. <laughs> I do. And I sit right by the stage because the reading light is better. <laughs> One time I went to a strip club, and this is, this is weird. I don't know why. The stripper, for some reason, told me her real name. Oh, so I left. <laughs> she didn't understand. She was like, where are you going? I was like, good night, Deborah. <laughs> God bless her, but my wife is mistaken about my life. She told me once she thinks my job is fun. My job is a job. I'm fun. It's too dangerous, man. You know, all last year, uh, I was I was touring with arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, living comedian, uh, Chris Rock. And him toured all year last year. And right before that tour started, uh, Chris was involved in what we blacks might even consider a, a, a goddamn 9-11. <laughs> Chris got slapped in the face at the Oscars by Will Smith, which was one of the craziest things I'd ever seen. In fact, if you watch it live on television like I did, when it happened, I thought it was fake. I did, and, and I wasn't sure. So you know what I did? I waited, because I'm like, you I know Chris, I waited like, 30, 40 minutes, as long as we're taking to get to another party. And I called him on FaceTime, and he picked up. As soon as he picked up, he said, he was the only nigga I'd ask the phone for. <laughs> Apparently, Obama and Oprah, everybody called this nigga, see if everything's all right. And I thought it was fake. I wasn't, I didn't know. So I, I asked when I go, I go, well, you know, he said, what? I said, well, did it hurt? And he said, yes, nigga, it hurt. <laughs> and then I knew that it was real. And then, and only then, was I offended. And I wasn't just offended that he got slapped. That was only half of it. The real offensive part was that after he slapped him, nigga Will just, just sat down and enjoyed the rest of his evening. It was crazy. <laughs> see what, what he was going to say in his special about, about this slap. And I told him all year, but the night he taped his special, Chris was one of these guys that's crafty. You never know what he's going to say until he really says it. So I went to see him take the special. He taped it right up the street in Baltimore. Now, you guys are from D.C., so you know, you know about Baltimore. <laughs> we all know that through the years, D.C. has been through some very, very tough times. Sadly, Baltimore is still at a very tough time. <laughs> Not everybody in the world really can understand the depth of Baltimore. Baltimore is so desperate that 
Tupac and his mother moved from Baltimore to Oakland for a better life. And Chris Rock went so hard in the paint, and I can't believe he did this, he shocked a Baltimore crowd. I didn't even know that was possible. I started doing comedy around Shocked him. And you know what he said that got him? He looked at the crowd, he looked, I, I didn't expect him to say this, he, he looked at the crowd, it's all black, Baltimore black. <laughs> Even if you're rich and black in Baltimore, you know them niggas is traumatized about something. And Chris Shockland, and, and this is what he said, he went to that crowd, that crowd. He said, I refuse to be a victim. The crowd said, oh. I was backstage with the They could watch the tape. <laughs> I know it's fucked up, but I, I tell you the truth. You know, everything, everything's funny. Everything's funny until it happens to you. Three months, a mere three months after that terrible attack. Chris Rock endured. I was on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. And the lunatic jumped out of the crowd and attacked me. Now, I got to tell you, if it happens to you, you don't even know what the fuck is happening. It was like slow motion. I just looked over. I don't know this thing. I just looked and said, oh, my God. I'm being attacked. And this motherfucker was ragged. He jumped at me. He's like, when I'm fast, I, I caught this motherfucker's head with my hand and pulled his hoodie over his eyes. I can still feel his head in my hand. It was spongy. He had been growing dreadlocks. Not the beautiful dreads that Bristopharians grow. These were accidental LA homeless dreads. This shit had leaves and sticks and bottle caps and shit in it. Some kind of grease. I was like, ugh, like this. And then I fell down. And he knocked me all the way on the ground. And, and I was like, man, this is a bad situation. I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna die or what's gonna happen. But in that moment, the vulnerability, you know what occurred to me that it never occurred to me before in my life? In that moment, it occurred to me that bodyguards should not wear dress shoes to work, Travis. <laughs> this nigga Travis came out slipping and sliding on some kind of beautiful loafer and, and, and fell flat on the back. I said, oh my God. Now both of us are down. I gotta handle this shit myself. So I pop that back, boom. And then, and then the kid that knocked me down, he popped up, boom. And we looked at each other and realized, same time, I was bigger than him. And that motherfucker took off running. And I started to chase him and I said, ah, fuck him. I picked the microphone up. I said, I'm gonna finish this show now. That's right. <laughs> For three months before that, I've been making fun of Chris Rock. And people would ask me all the time. They'd say, Dave, what would you do if you were Chris Rock and Will Smith slapped you in the face? To this day, the answer is the same. Well, I don't know what I would have done. I've never been in a situation that extreme. But I do know now 
what Will Smith would not have done. And that is, enjoy the rest of his evening. <laughs> Man, listen. We gave that chat a good while. We was whooping his ass. Not we. I mean, I was on stage trying to think of a joke to tell, but they was beating this nigga up right behind me. Everybody can see it. Everybody can see it. And I'm sitting up there trying to think of what to say. Um, 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 and I'm and I'm tongue-tied. Me, of all people, can't think of anything to say. Look at my karma. Just that moment. Of all the people in the world, Chris Rock walks from backstage, walks up to me in front of 20,000 people, grabs the mic out of my hands, and looks at the crowd and goes, Was that Will Smith? Man, motherfuckers fell out of their chairs like that. I was standing there looking stupid. I was fucking furious because I'm thinking in my mind, nigga, this is my attack. You got attacked three months ago. Now you have jokes. So I snatched the mic back from Chris and tried to get one off, but my shit did not go good at all. I didn't know what to say. I was just like, it was a trans man. And the crowd was like, boo. It's LA, we like trans people, boo. I know, I felt so bad. I felt so bad. But I know why I did it. You have to be there to understand, but, but man, when that guy tackled me, it was like a, it's like a movie or something. You, you gotta picture this. Picture a famous person like every famous person you could imagine was at that show. It was like the biggest thing that Hollywood had ever seen. And when that guy tackled me, he cleared the bleachers. I had to watch the tape afterwards to know what was happening, but, but as soon as he tackled me, Jamie Foxx was the first motherfucker that jumped out of the crowd. He was wearing a white cowboy hat like he knew this shit was going to happen to him. <laughs> never seen this thing in a cowboy hat before. <laughs> and Jamie started chasing that motherfucker around like any given Sunday. And, and that kid was fast as shit, was juking and shaking, and they broke Jamie's ankles, and he just kept running. And then John Stewart from The Daily Show ran from backstage and jumped at this motherfucker like Super Jew. He was like, Can't see John coming, so he jumped back and John was flying that way. And this kid was fast, and then he turned around. He sees the emergency exit, he starts running for the emergency exit just before he got to the door. Motherfucker, Puff Daddy from Bad Boy Records jumped in front of the door. That man was like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> Boy, Puffy got that motherfucker. And then every celebrity just ran out because every celebrity saw themselves in me and they just started beating the fuck out of that kid. And I know Chris was backstage looking like, nobody help me. Everybody hates Chris. than what you guys might have read. I don't know what you read, but the kid, while he was beating on him, reached in his waistband, pulled out 22 caliber pistol. It was mayhem. Everybody started screaming, oh my God, oh my God, he's got a gun. 
He's got a gun. And then I got scared. I was in the back, but I was scared. Because I knew that everybody that was with me was armed. Yes, they had shot and killed this kid on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. Like I paid to do, Travis. <laughs> but Travis G'd up. Travis wrestled the gun out of the kid's hand. And then he took it like this tried to chamber the round and he couldn't. So he pulled the trigger and it wasn't a gun. A knife blade popped out of the front. Guess this kid was going to stab me. Some scary shit. So the next night, even though I didn't have a show, I said, I got to get right back on stage. I went and did a show. Someone in the audience screamed out, Hey, what happened with the attack? And I didn't know it was journalists in the room. All I said was that this thing had a knife that identified as a gun. <laughs> I got six more weeks of bad press for that joke. I didn't even do nothing to this thing. That's not right. That was not right. And then the New York Post went to the jail and interviewed my attacker like he was some kind of hero. And I read that interview. Turns out the entire attack was my fault. Yes, I triggered him. I didn't mean to. I had done jokes about the homeless. It turns out this young man was homeless. I mean, there's no way I could have known this. But I will say, um, for homeless guys, this nigga had incredible seats. Said I triggered him because because I had done LPG. Thanks for not giving me a standing old motherfuckers. This is the worst. It's alright. It's alright. I just wanted to smoke. You like that, don't you? Okay. Before I did kill him softly, when I was 22. HBO gave me the biggest opportunity of my life at that time. They gave me a half hour special, but this shit was not like special. You know what I mean? It was like generic. It didn't even have a title. It was just HBO. And I shot it in San Francisco at a place called Broadway Studios, which is on the second floor of a building. And beneath Broadway Studios is a nightclub. And the special was only supposed to be 30 minutes. I got ready, I practiced, I did all the shit I was supposed to do. And, and the night that I taped, 20 minutes into my 30 minutes set, I'll never forget this music. Music started blasting the nightclub underneath. You could hear it real loud. And it fucked my whole show up. And I was devastated. I was a young man. I really believed in what I was doing. And I thought that my dream would kill me. So when I got off stage, I ran down steps to the alley behind Broadway Studios and where the control trucks are parked, and I kicked that motherfucking door open, and I started yelling at all the producers. I was nobody in show business. This guy that believed in us. I said, man, guess you fucked everything up. That fucking music, what the fuck were you thinking? And there was a, a guy who was a big-time producer. I ain't saying no names. And he stood up, and he said, hey, kid, sit the fuck down. He said, we didn't ruin anything. He said, we made a deal. 
people at nightclub and not play music and they didn't honor the deal. And I said, who didn't honor the deal? And he pointed to a guy. I'll never forget it, it was an old white man sitting in the Fort Taurus by himself. He said, that guy right there. And I didn't waste no time or ask no questions. I went to that Fort Taurus and I beat on that window and I said, open the door, motherfucker, I want to talk to you. And that old man looked at me for one second and wisely drove the fuck off. <laughs> and left me in the alley cussing at anybody who would listen. And two minutes later, literally 120 seconds later, couldn't be any more than that, the doors, the kitchen, and the alley of that nightclub underneath Broadway Studios flung open. And that old man was standing there, that same old man with reinforcements. He had two big goons with him. And he looked at me, he was calm as a cucumber. He said, you, come here. I want to talk to you. I didn't know anything about the streets at this age. But I found out later in my life that these men were Russian mobsters. And I don't know what you guys know about the Russian mob, but these are the niggas that killed Denzel and trained it. And all the producers knew what I was up against. They said, Dave, do not go in there. And I said, yeah, fuck y'all. And I walked right into that kitchen and they closed the doors behind me and it got dark as fuck in there. And I knew I'm not dumb. I knew I was in a bad situation. She had to understand I believed in what I was doing. I didn't give a fuck. Just kept cussing at these motherfuckers. Tell them how they ruined my life. And that old man couldn't believe that I was talking all this shit. As soon as I took a breath, he stopped me gently. He said, hey, kid, listen. Your friends lied to you. He said, we made a deal. Your friends never paid me. When he said that, I realized I was locked in the kitchen. <laughs> I realized he was telling the truth, which would make me wrong. And the moment the very moment that I realized I was wrong for the first time, I was afraid. You see, it's a funny thing if you believe you're absolutely right. You're drunk off the feeling of how right you are. That's why gay people are so mean. Another day, and in that moment, 
I learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life, and I have to share with you. And that lesson is this. In your life, in any given moment, the strongest dream in that moment wins that moment. I am a very powerful dream. Yeah, I'm not right. I dream tonight, this very night, as a 14-year-old boy, and I'm living it as a 50-year-old man. My dreams are very strong. Today, I walked all around Washington. I used to be poor in this city. And all day, people just said, hey, Dave, hey, Dave, like they knew me personally. And I felt like I knew them. And I say to myself, my God, Dave, a powerful dream. But then sometimes, sometimes, I feel regular. Feel like myself. Maybe I'll smoke some weed and be in some nightclub and feel shy. But I'll look across the nightclub and I'll see some guy that no one's ever heard of. But this nigga worked all week and got bottle service. And this bitch is bringing Moet sparklers to him. I picture in my mind he's Persian. He's doing some kind of weird Persian dance. And he got six bitches at his table because he got so much liquor. And they always call him saying, go see them, go see them. And I'll be looking across the room like, oh my God, I'm in that guy's dream. I can hear him telling his friends, hey, I was at the club last night. Man, that shit was fantastic. I had bottle service. I seen Dave Pell across the club looking at me like, who is that? <laughs> and that's the trick to life. You have to be wise enough to know you are living in your dream. And you have to be humble enough to accept you're in someone else's. That's why, that's why I don't judge between Will Smith and Chris Rock. Because you guys look at them as big ideas, but I look at them as fellow dreamers. I can't judge between them because I see myself in both of them. I am Will Smith. I am the man that cannot take it anymore and will slap the shit out of the next person that says a crossword to me or somebody that I love. And I am Chris Rock. I am the man that can get slapped in front of the whole world and keep my composure so I don't fuck anything up. That is what Men do. Men make boundaries. Men enforce boundaries. And men test boundaries. And no man tests more boundaries than a trans man. see a fellow dreamer, I give them my utmost respect. Even if I don't understand what their dream is, I know a dreamer when I see one. And I've met many powerful dreamers in my life. None more powerful than a man who calls himself Little Nas X. <laughs> I met this nigga at a party. I had no idea who he was. 
But the minute he walked in that party, I knew I was in his dream. Everybody in the party was another dreamer. Everyone was famous, but when that nigga walked in, he was dressed like C-3PO. He was shiny. And everyone was like, oh my God, there he is. There's someone else that's all. I didn't know who he was. And for some reason, out of all them dreamers, he walked right up to me. And he said, I tried to get you in my video. I don't know what the fuck you saw. I said, what? I said, what? What video? And he just looked at me like, you know what video. And walked away. <laughs> and I watched him walk away. I said, man, this nigga's having a very powerful dream. <laughs> It reminded me of when we was in grade school. Remember in grade school, the teacher would ask everybody what they want to be? Timmy, Timmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Timmy acted like he had an idea. He'd stand up and say, I want to be a fireman. And the teacher would say, Timmy, that is a beautiful dream. But Timmy didn't mean it. Timmy said he wanted to be a fireman because deep down, Timmy's attracted to fire. <laughs> By the time he's 14 years old, this nigga's a full-blown pyromaniac playing with kerosene and matches like a goddamn expert. And then one night he goes downtown with his buddies, fucking around with fire, and burns a warehouse down. And he doesn't know, but there's 13 migrant workers from El Salvador, and they're in that motherfucker, they get trapped. And then they die in a fire. Isn't that a tragedy? Nah, it was an accident. He's only 14 years old, but ah, he's black. So they try him as an adult. Timmy ends up spending the rest of his life in jail. Dream deferred. <laughs> what about you, Billy? Billy, Billy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Billy stands up and he says, I want to be president of the United States. And he says, oh my God, Billy. Billy, that is a wonderful dream. And Billy means that shit. Billy does everything right. That motherfucker gets his grades up, joins student government, he even does extracurricular activities like show choir just to make his resume look good. He's on track to be president, but junior year he wipes. He's 16, he gets his girlfriend pregnant. He has to drop out of high school to make ends meet. But lucky for him, the local Walmart's hiring. By the time he's 20 years old, this motherfucker makes assistant manager at Walmart. He's the youngest one in the district. He says, oh my God, if I can keep this up for four more years, I could be a manager. And if I can keep this up for six more years after that, I can even be a regional manager and have as many as three Walmarts under my control. And he's a big picture guy. He sees where this path is going. So he kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What do you want to be when you grow up? I don't want to say, because I don't want the other kids to laugh at me. Who cares if they laugh? Your dream is yours. Own your dream so they can come true. Say it loud and proud. What do you want to be when you grow up? Little nonsense.
That nigga stood up in front of the whole class. I want to be the gayest nigga that ever lived. I want to do a music video and slide down a stripper pole all the way to the depths of hell and suck the devil's dick at 10 o'clock on BET while all the kids are awake and can see me. Shockingly, that was the only dream that worked out. That's why I'm here tonight in the city where I built the dreams that I live. Because I wanted to tell you all that they came true. And I wanted to thank you all for making the man that I am today. Yes, I am living a very powerful dream. Every time I come to this city and I stand in front of you, I realize that, my God, man, this is not my dream at all. It's yours, and I am honored to be in it. Thank you very much for watching this I'll see you next time.